As we continue our study, line upon line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, that's where we find ourselves tonight. And so let's again just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Oh, Father, we, we know that You've overheard these things. We know that You're here among us. And Father, we thank You so much for what we have in our hand and what we're sowing in our hearts. Oh, Lord, eternity will tell. Oh, Lord, the value and the treasure of Your truth. And so, Lord, tonight we would pray that this would be more than speaking, more than the words of a man, more than an intellectual exercise of outlining and looking through a chapter of the Bible. But, Lord, we pray that the eternal word would be seeded and take root and grow up in our hearts, and that the things that we hear tonight, Lord, would change us forever. So help us, Lord, as we continue in your truth to be those that are set free. So bless this time in your word. Fill the sanctuary in our hearts with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. It says, And there was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee, for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 103, verse 7. It says that God made his acts, A-C-T-S, his actions, known unto the children of Israel. But he made his ways known unto Moses. And of course, that's a reference back to the days when Moses was leading the people of God through the wilderness. But that, that one single verse tells us very much. It tells us that, that the people, generically, congregationally, that they observed the things that God did, and they saw those actions. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the manna fall from heaven. They saw the earth open up its mouth and swallow 24,000 sinners. You know, they, they saw these incredible things that God did. But it went no further than just the observing of the acts or the action. But of Moses, who was leading the people in those days, it says of him that God made known his ways unto Moses. Now, the ways versus the action is the why versus the what. In other words, if you see what somebody does, then you're simply observing something that they do. It's an action. But it doesn't answer the question of why. Why did they do what they do? I have five kids, and I watch what they do. I see their actions. And four out of five of them, I know their ways. I know why they do what they do. But I have one that I just can't figure out. I see some of the things that he does. I know his acts, but I can't figure out his ways. I can't figure out why he does the things that he does. But it says of Moses that it was further with him than just simply seeing the what of what God did, but he saw the why. He knew why God did what he did. And when a person makes the transition from simply seeing what God does or what God can do to understanding why God does what 
God does, they have made the transition from simply knowing about God by general observation to now knowing God through intimate reality and relationship. And that's what it says concerning Moses. Now, once a person knows the ways of God, that person can say that they know God. They understand what makes him operate, what makes him tick, why he does the things that he does. Now, the heart of our God and the will of our God for you and I is not simply that we would read the Bible or hear testimony and know his acts, the things that he does, the actions. But what God wants for us is that we would know his ways, that we would understand why he does the things that he does, and in the process, we would come to know him, that we would come into a relationship intimately with the true and the living God. And thus, as we go through the scriptures and we see the what of what God does, God's desire is that we not simply make the intellectual observation, but that we come to an understanding of the why behind the what. Why does God do the things that God does? And thus we come now to the man Isaac. We studied the life of Abraham. In our last study, we were introduced to the man Isaac. We heard about how he received a bride. He was married to Rebekah. We heard about the struggle of their barrenness and how they sought the Lord and saw God come through and that twins were born, Jacob and Esau. But as we come into chapter 26, we have a chapter, only one, that is dedicated exclusively to the man Isaac, the son of Abraham. And the interesting thing about him is that he lived longer than any of the other patriarchs. He he lived longer than Abraham. He will live longer than his son Jacob. And yet there is vastly more testimony on the pages of Scripture of his father and of his son than of him. Isaac simply gets one chapter, but in this one chapter, God encapsulates the entire story of Isaac's entire walk with God, the relationship that he had with God throughout the 180 years of his existence. The chapter essentially breaks down into three sections. The first is his forming and preparation, which we see in the first 11 verses as God raises him up and prepares him. The second part, the second segment, is Isaac finding his place in this world and in God's will, verses 12 through 25. And then thirdly, verses 26 through 35, finding his peace. So first, his forming and preparation, then him finding his place, and then finally, him finding his peace, a great picture of what God does uh, with Isaac and ultimately what he does with all of us. The chapter begins, as we read in verse 1, with the presence of a famine. Isaac is dwelling in the area of the land that is known as Beersheba. It's way down in the south, if you can picture the land of Israel, what one day would become Israel and is in the present day. Way down in the southern part is the area of Beersheba. And it tells us that God sent a famine and the Holy Spirit on the pages of Scripture here compares it to the famine that was in the days of Abraham. It wasn't the same famine, but it was a famine very similar. Now, in so doing, what God is letting us know is that this famine was ordained by God and it was being used by God in Isaac's life with the same purpose that the famine was used for in Abraham's life. And that was that it was a test. Now, here's an amazing thing. When we talk about knowing the whys 
W-H-Y-S, of God, why he does what he does, and learning his ways that we might know him. It's so comforting, isn't it, to know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? That the same God that called Abraham and then his son Isaac and raised them up is the same God that calls you and I. And here's the great value in what we see in this man Isaac in his testimony. Is that in the same way that God dealt with Abraham and now is dealing with Isaac, he also deals with you and I because he is the same. And it's interesting to me that the first thing that it tells us concerning Isaac in his walk with God and in his being raised up is that he was tested. There was a test that came in the form of a famine, just like it was with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Now, God dealing with them that way, he also deals with you and I that way. And thus, as we come to know him, we come into relationship with him, there's also going to be a period of testing and trial and preparation in our lives as well. Because that's what God does. You say, well, why? We know he tests us. We've all felt that. We feel that on a constant basis, it seems like. But why is it that God tests? Why are there these trials? Well, God uses the tests and trials in the life of his kids basically to produce three outcomes. Number one to expose our weaknesses and our flaws, thus showing us that we need to depend on him. The tests and trials in our lives expose our weaknesses and flaws and cause us to depend upon him. Second, secondarily, God causes tests and allows tests in our lives because in those tests, God reveals himself to us. Now, how many people can say amen to that? to those that have been through tests and trials and tribulations, things that cause us to say, why, God, is this happening to me and where are you in it? As we walk through those things and ultimately we live through those things, we look back and we realize that God was with us while we were going through them. And God actually uses the tests and the difficult times to reveal himself in ways that otherwise we wouldn't have recognized him or that we wouldn't know him. So God reveals himself in the trials. And then number three, the third thing that God does through these trials is that he removes the root of the sin and the weakness and the flaw. That is, he actually purifies us by allowing the fire of the tests to burn away the worthless parts of us and refine the things that are valuable. So God uses these tests in us as he prepares us and raises us up to show us our need for him to reveal his power and his strength, and to purify our lives. And thus those tests and trials are essential. And we see that God is the same with Isaac as he was with Abraham, and that God allows now this trial to come into his life, is that there's a famine in the land. Now interestingly, Isaac, just like his father, fails the test. He doesn't look to the Lord in the middle of it, But rather, it says that he left the place where he was dwelling in Beersheba, and it says that he went down to the Philistines unto Gerar. Now, we're also told in verse 2 that Isaac's intention was to go down to Egypt because God had to stop him mid-journey and say, hey, don't do what your father did. Remember? Remember Abraham? He went all the way to Egypt, and he made a huge mess of things when he resorted to Egypt's help in a famine. Well, God interrupts Isaac, doesn't let him get that far, but right to the border. That's where Gerar was, right on the border of Egypt. And God says, "Ah, ah, ah, that's enough. 
You'll stop here. You'll go no further. Dwell in this land. What we see is that Isaac, in his weakness, in his lapse of faith in God at this point in his life, sought help and means outside of God to fix the problem that he was facing. Now, when you and I are tested and we come into a difficult time, a difficult season, something happens in our life that causes us to panic or or, or wonder how we're going to get out of it, we have two choices, just like Isaac did or Abraham or anyone else. We can either look to the Lord to be the help and to meet the need that we have with patience and faith, Or we can look to something else. And that's basically the two choices. Now, the something else category is huge, right, to the things that we can look to. But that's our choice. We can look to the Lord or we can look to something else. We see that Isaac here doesn't look to the Lord, but rather he looks to something else. And in this specifically, he looks unto Egypt. He wants to go to Egypt. Now, any time a person looks to something else other than the Lord in the time of their testing, what that reveals is a lack of faith or a smallness of faith. And that's what's happening in Isaac's life right now, is that God is exposing and revealing that there's a lack of faith. His faith is not yet made perfect. The same thing is true for us. When in our trials and tests, we look to something else. We turn to a worldly or false source of comfort. We medicate under the pressure of our problems. Or we look for some financial bailout from some source that we have, something on the outside when we feel those pressures come. Anything that we look to other than God, when famine comes, whether it's a famine mentally, spiritually, physically, financially, provisionally, relationally, whatever area of our life that famine comes, we can look to God or we can look to something else. And if we look to something else, it's a sign that there's a flaw in our faith somewhere. We have faltered in things. God says in Isaiah chapter 30 concerning this whole concept of looking somewhere else other than him in the middle of a famine. I want you to listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. It's Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. It says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel but not from me. And that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they might add sin to sin. That walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth. That's Isaac. To strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh. Pharaoh in Egypt, representing in the Bible the world and its ways. And to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, because of this, God says, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. In other words, God says, well, even if that works, you're going to come to a point in your life where you regret making the decision to trust in something other than me. Now, here's the amazing thing is that God's going to be with Isaac and bring him through this whole episode. But this is going to be fulfilled within his life. This move to depart from Beersheba, to go even as far as Gerar, is going to become a headache and a hindrance to him later on. And that's always the case when we rely upon something other than God to help us in our time of need. For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be a help nor profit, but a shame and a reproach. The burden of the beasts of the south into the land of trouble and anguish from whence come the young and old lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. 
They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of the young donkeys and their treasures upon the bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. For the Egyptians shall help in vain. In other words, even if your self-prescribed means of fixing your problem works, it's going to be for nothing. And to no purpose, therefore, God says, have I cried concerning this. Listen, here's the answer. Their strength is to sit still. In other words, when you're in the time of famine and testing and God is doing something in your life, don't try to fix the problem. If you try to fix it yourself, God's going to have to bring another fix to put you in to fix your attempt to fix what he was trying to fix by bringing you into the famine in the first place. Listen, church, Christian, this is the secret that we have that the world knows nothing of is that we have a God who calls himself omnipotent, meaning he can do all things. The very first command that he gave in the 10 is that he said, we're to have no other gods besides him. Now, if God tells us that we're not to have any other God besides him, then that means that he is claiming sufficiency to be the thing that we need in whatever circumstance that we're in. What is a God? A God is something that we look to that's stronger than ourselves to help us for a need that we have. And if God says, don't do that, then that means God can meet the need, whatever it is. And so the secret of the Christian that we have, the secret of our strength, is that we can sit still. And we can wait upon him for his solution in his time. That's faith. Now, to turn from that and to go aside to something else is the revelation of a lack of faith within our lives. And that's what we see happening here in Isaac's action as he goes down to Egypt and he, he trusts in the shadow of Egypt. Listen, here's, here's something that you need to know and understand, each of us. We cannot control the things that happen to us. The circumstances, whether it be a famine, like in the days of Isaac, or whether it be something that happens. You have a spouse that maybe is unfaithful to you, or you have a child that goes wayward, or something happens in your life. You lose a job, or something in your health turns south, sideways. You cannot control the things that happen to you. God alone controls those circumstances. But what you and I can control is what we do in response to those circumstances. We have the three weapons that God has laid before us that are completely sufficient in all things. We have prayer, we have the Word of God, and we have the leading of the Holy Spirit. We have prayer. God says, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that we're to be anxious for nothing. But in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we're to make our requests known unto God. And he couples it with the promise that the peace of God that passes understanding will keep our hearts and our minds through Christ when we do that. So we pray. Secondly, we have the word of God. Meaning that just because famine comes or an unexpected circumstance, that doesn't give you and I the right to disobey what God has already told us that we're to do. Sadly, as a pastor, I sit across the desk often from people when they tell me their circumstances, they'll say, well, this is where I've got myself. And usually they're, they're confessing some sin somewhere they've gone off the rails and the whole thing. And as you dig a little deeper and you pry into the circumstances and what happens and you begin to ask, well, why did you do this or why did you make such and such a decision? They say, well, this, this happened to me and therefore I had the excuse to do this. It'll go along the lines of, well, she cheated on me, so I cheated on her. Or something to that effect. Or God let me down. It didn't come through on time. So I showed him what I thought of that by doing this. 
See, listen, you can't control the things that happen to you, but you can control how you respond in those circumstances. And we're called to walk in the Word of God according to the truth of God. We maintain our integrity and our uprightness, trusting in God that He's going to work it out even though we don't like the circumstance that we're in. And we have the leading of the Holy Spirit. God says and promises that we will have a helper that will stay with us forever. And thus, in the middle of those dark circumstances, we wait on his leading, we pay attention to his promptings, and we follow accordingly. And God will bring us through the times of famine. We can't control what happens to us, but we can control what we do when those circumstances come. Prayer, the word of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, a trifecta of success in any situation. Well, we see Isaac here. He goes as far as Gerah. Now, the interesting thing in all of this is that God stops him before he goes down to Egypt. God actually intervenes. Now, God didn't do that for Abraham. God let Abraham go. But God stops Isaac in this, and I love the Lord. Because what it tells me is that God knows us. And he deals with each one of us differently in our circumstances, and he knows what, what, what we can bear, and he knows what he's going to use. And he doesn't deal with us exactly in the same way. God meets Isaac in this, and he says, Hey, Isaac, listen, I don't want you to go to Egypt. You're to dwell in this land. This is the land that I've promised. And by the way, remember the promise and the oath that I swore unto Abraham concerning his seed and his descendants and my plan for your generations to come? That promise still holds true because of Abraham and because he obeyed my voice and my commands. I'm, I'm working in your life, Isaac. I'm going to protect and preserve you in the whole thing. But God comes and God knows what Isaac needs. And so God appears, gives him instruction, he gives him a promise, and he gives him reason in the whole thing. And he says, listen, you've come this far, stay put. Please don't check out of the land. God is so good, isn't he, the way that he deals with us? I was talking to my son this week, and we were just talking about different um, things that God does in different lives. And we were talking about Joseph and how, you know, the man Joseph that we're going to study in a few chapters in Genesis, the son of Jacob, and he really was tested. I mean, his test just went on and on and on as God was preparing him for, for his future. But at least twice, probably more often than, than just two episodes, but at least twice, Joseph, if he wanted to, had the opportunity that he could have just quit God's preparation, quit the prison, quit slavery, and just escaped. I mean, he became the chief in, in, in his master's household. He had the freedom and the liberty, if he wanted, he could have snuck away, and he would have got away with it. He became the chief man in the prison. He knew how the whole thing worked. He was running the prison. If he wanted to, he could have escaped. But there was something inside of Joseph that even though the circumstances were so dark and it seemed that he was being treated so unfairly, he had this sense inside that God was in it and that there was a purpose for all of his sufferings. And he didn't leave. Even though he could have, he didn't leave. He stayed in because there was something on the inside that was saying to him, hang in there. God's got a plan. This is going to work out. I know it's dark right now, but you need this in your life. And he stayed in the situation, even though the situation was bad. Now, fast forward a couple of hundred years, and another man, equally as great as Joseph, maybe even greater, King David. And King David also had a long season of testing and preparation while God was shaping him into the kind of king that could rightly lead his people. And as David found himself a fugitive, running from an insane King Saul, not knowing if he would live another day through God's plan, 
David brought his parents to Moab. He left the land and he brought his parents to a place where they would be safe, knowing that the king would kill anything related to David. And David, he stayed in Moab. Unlike Joseph, he thought, wow, I'm out of the borders of Israel. I'm safe and kept from Saul here. I'm going to stay in Moab. This is great. I don't have any threat of my life. I can put my feet up and I can eat three squares and I love it here. This is awesome. But to David, God sent a prophet prophet by the name of Gad. And Gad came to David in Moab and he said to David, he said, hey Dave, I know you're comfortable here in Moab. I know that it seems like, you know, you could check out and it'll be easier for a season, but God wants you in the wilderness right now, running from a jealous king, living in caves. That's where God wants you. That's the will of God for your life. You need to leave Moab and you need to go back to Judah and run for your life. And you know what? David did it. Because David believed that what the prophet was saying, there was something that bore witness on the inside that he needed to hang in there in the midst of his trial and difficulty, even though the circumstances were dire. And so David did it. He went back, and for a number of years, he continued living a fugitive life because he realized that this difficulty is ordained of God for me right now. Now, the same thing is true for me and you. We're going to be tested and tried. We're going to have difficult days. God is going to prepare us and shape us into the thing that he wants us to be. And sometimes the process is painful. But it's up to you and I to hang in there and to let him complete his work so that we're not lacking what we need when we get to what God wants to do with us. He deals with us differently, but we must respond. Don't go any further, Isaac. You can come this far but stay. And so Isaac obeys. He doesn't leave. He stays in Gerar, but God's got more work to do. Isn't it interesting how God reveals himself to Isaac in the middle of the famine? I'm in this, Isaac. He sees it. Well, now we see of Isaac in verse 6 all the way down through verse 11, we see now the sin being rooted out of Isaac. Part of the reason for this famine was because God saw that something needs to be dealt with. Something needs to be removed. And here it is. It says that Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him of his wife. And he said, oh, well, um, she's my sister. For he feared to say that she's my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass that when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw... And behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Now, they were not playing badminton or volleyball. And the reason that we know that is because it says in verse 9 that Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. They were probably playing Twister or something else along those lines that you just wouldn't do with your sibling. So how saidst thou that she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, lest I die for her. And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lied with thy wife, and you should have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now you may read this with me, and you might be thinking, Well, didn't we already study this chapter? This sounds kind of familiar, what we're reading about. Didn't we read this somewhere before? And the answer is absolutely, yes, we did. 
but not concerning Isaac and Rebekah, but rather concerning Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And what we see in this is that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, doesn't it? Is that sometimes the sins of the father manifest themselves in the life of the son. We see as Abraham did with Sarah in his time of lapsing, we see that Isaac followed in the footsteps and he did the same thing in his. It brings up an interesting question. From time to time, you'll hear people talk about this concept of a generational curse. The idea behind a generational curse is that the sins of a father are going to be visited on successive generations in such a way that those successive generations have no choice but to fall in the place that their fathers did. It's a generational curse. I'm cursed. I'm under a curse that I cannot be free of this sin that my parents have committed. I've got good news for you if you've ever heard that before or if you've ever felt that before. It's an unbiblical concept. There's no such thing in the Bible as a generational curse. There is a such thing in the Bible as a generational crop. And there's a big difference. See, the Bible says that what we sow, we will also reap. And as parents, we sow into the lives of our kids both the good things that we teach and that we do and that we show, but we also sow into their lives the bad things that we do and say and sow. Those things are sown into their hearts as well, and thus that can bear fruit and bring up a crop within their life. But listen, it is not a curse. It is not something to wherein that child or that life is not sovereign over its actions and its decisions. Oh, I'm predestined to go the way that my father did. I'm going to blow it like he did. No, 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 no. That's not necessarily true. In fact, God goes out of his way to say emphatically, I don't want you to use that as an excuse when you sin. Listen to this verse in Ezekiel chapter 18. It's Ezekiel 18, and this should be one that you guys know, that you're aware of. You remember where it is and what this says. God says this, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What do you mean that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, and here it is, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the proverb was, well, look, the reason our teeth are rotten is because our parents didn't go to the dentist. It's their fault that we have these issues and these problems. It's the things that they did. God says, why do you say this? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, and here's the truth, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and has not eaten upon the mountains, neither lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither defiled his neighbor's wife, neither come near to a menstruous woman, nor has oppressed any, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, and has spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with a garment, He that has not given forth upon usury or interest, neither has taken any increase, that has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true justice between man and man, has walked in my statutes and kept my commandments to deal truly, he is just and he shall surely live, says the Lord God. And if he, that is the just person, begat a son, that is a robber, a shedder of blood, that does any like to any of those things, 
and that does not any of those duties, but even has eaten upon the mountains and defiled his neighbor's wife and has oppressed the poor and the needy and spoiled by violence and not restored the pledge and lifted up his eyes to idols and committed abomination, has given forth upon usury and taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Now, lo, if he beget a son that sees all his father's sins, which he has done, and considers and does not the like. Now, listen, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you're getting the idea of where this is going. Do you know that God takes this entire chapter, it's 32 verses long, and he keeps going? He says in verse 17, at the end of it, he says that that one will surely live. And then he says in verse 19, he says, yet you say, why? Does not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what's lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and has done them, God says, he shall surely live. Now, it goes on. I want you to read the whole chapter for your homework. And if you can come at the end of reading Ezekiel chapter 18 and say to me, there is a such thing as a generational curse, I will say, I'm reading a different Bible than you are reading. Because God emphatically declares, don't say that this is the curse of a previous generation. Now, generational crop? Absolutely. I have learned more about my family history from my tendencies as a man than I could ever learn at Ancestry.com. I know the sins of my fathers because I deal with the temptations and the things that come in my family line. I also know the things that my family has not dealt with in generations past because there are certain sins and temptations that don't touch me at all. In fact, I, sometimes I wonder how they could even exist in the world. It's so far from me that they are. And I know the things that my parents and grandparents and extended family, I know the things that they go through and have, have, have been linked to transgressions and whatnot because I know myself. But that doesn't mean I'm destined to repeat it. The Bible says that the same spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in me. And if that spirit is powerful enough to raise a man from the dead and he declares upon my life that the truth will make me free, then for me to say that I am bound by a curse to repeat those sins is to make God a liar and to blaspheme the power of his Holy Spirit in my life. God gives us power over those things. But we as parents need to take heed to the things that we're sowing into the generations that follow. The story is told of a man who, on Thanksgiving night, realized that they had run out of wine. And so thinking that he would just be able to go down the street to a gas station and pick up some cheap wine for his house guests, he made his way down the stairs of his apartment building on that snowy Thanksgiving night. And as he was walking, making his way, squishing the snow, he thought he heard something behind him, so he turned and he saw his young son, who was not even wearing a jacket, who had followed him out of the house and who was hopping the, the great span between this father's footsteps. And he was jumping from one to the next, trying not to fall into the depths of the snow. And as the father turned around and saw his son there walking in his steps, he said, son, what are you doing out here? And this cold, this night, and the son looked at his father with big eyes and innocent smile. He said, Dad, I'm following in your footsteps. And then he thought about where he was going. And he said, son, let's go home. <laughs> and he turned around and he left because something happened. It struck him. He realized that my kids, they're going to follow in my footsteps. 
and the things that I do, they're going to have a tendency towards the same. We see it fulfilled in Isaac here to a T. The same sin of his father. Well, the Bible says, listen, be sure your sin will what? Find you out. And his sin found him out as he was there doing something somewhere where he was seen by none other than the king himself. And the king realized that Isaac had lied and that Rebekah was actually his wife. Listen, you're not going to get away with sin. God, first of all, sees it in advance. He knows the things that are in our heart, and he is committed to setting us free from it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that whoso sinneth is a servant to that sin. By what or to whom a man is overcome, to the same he is brought into bondage. And thus, when there's sin in our life, we're a slave to those sins, and God wants his kids free. And so God is going to do what it takes to root that sin out of us. Now, the Bible says that the sin of a man will find him out, and it always does, and it always will. And sometimes that makes us fear. We go, ooh, and it should. But the good news about that truth is that sometimes that's what it takes, isn't it? It's true that your sin will find you out, but it's also true that often when it does, that's the key to our freedom, the exposure. And so Isaac is exposed. His sin is known, and in the process, he's set free. He's set free from living in the lie. That's a blessed day when a man or a woman is set free from living in a lie. God wins. Isaac is prepared. Now, the trial is over. He's living in Gerar. He's living in the light. And notice what happens next, verse 12. It says, Then Isaac sowed in the land, and he received in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great store of servants. And it says that the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for you are much mightier than we. Do you notice the progression that it says back in verse 12? It says, Then Isaac sowed in the land and received in the same year a hundredfold. It was when the sin was exposed and removed... And that Isaac is now prepared and walking in the light that God does for Isaac the thing that God had been wanting to do for Isaac all along. He put his hand towards something and God was able to bless it and now increase Isaac to the point where not only is he a hundredfold richer than when he began, but it says that he waxed great. That meant step by step, day by day, he was getting thicker and thicker with riches and wealth. It says that he went forward, meaning that he was making progress in his life. It wasn't three steps forward and two steps back. It wasn't lap after lap around the mountain trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. But he's now walking and living in a way where he's streamlined in a path of blessing. God is prospering Isaac's life. Now, I believe, and the Bible teaches, that that's the will of God for us. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. This isn't you know, some prosperity, heaven on earth teaching. But God's desire for our lives, He wants to bless us. He wants to move us forward. He wants to make us great. But He's going to finish the preparation process 
and remove the things that are a snare to us before he fulfills that prosperity and that promise of moving us forward. But Isaac finds himself in a place where now he can move forward. He's finding his place within the land. Notice that it stirs up jealousy in the heart of the Philistines. Remember that passage in Isaiah 30 where God says that the strength of Egypt is going to turn out to be your shame? Well, when the prosperity finally comes in Isaac's life, it stirs up such jealousy amongst the Philistines that were living there in Gerar that they go and sabotage the wells that Isaac had spent so much time un you know, uh, unstopping and and preparing for his flocks and his herds. Beware, church, beware of purposefully, even subtly purposefully, doing things that will make other people jealous when you're living in the blessing of God. The Bible says it's a great verse, Proverbs 27, verse 4. It says that wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who can stand before envy? In other words, if you do something that makes someone really, really angry, that's not a good thing. And if you do something that stirs up wrath in a person, I mean, they're just, they're incited against you. And that's outrageous. I mean, that's, that's intense. You don't want to be in that position. But what the wise man is saying in that verse is that, listen, if that happens to you, that's one thing. But if someone becomes secretly jealous of you, it's infinitely worse. And that's true. There's truth in it. Because when someone is jealous of you, deeply jealous and envious of you, they'll do something to sabotage you and you don't even know that it's happening. Because they'll look you in the face with the brightest smile and you don't even know that there's a problem. But inwardly, that person is burning with hatred towards you and wants to destroy you. Don't ever do something to make someone jealous. Part of the reason why it would have been better for Isaac to just stay in Beersheba and not to have gone to Gerar is because the prosperity in Gerar set him up for this sabotage and it's going to cause him all kinds of relational problems with the people in the land. Well, notice after he's expelled from Gerar in verse 16, it says in verse 17, that Isaac departed thence and he pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and he dwelt there. He went real far. He went from Gerar to the valley of Gerar. So he picked up his things, he walked down a hill and he set up camp there. And it says that Isaac digged again in the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley, and they found there a well of springing water, living water, more accurately it would be translated. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water of our, is ours. And so he called the name of the well Esek. Esek means strife because they strove with him. And so they digged another well, and they strove for that also, and he called the name of it Sitna. Sitna means contention. And so he removed from there, and he digged another well, and for that they strove not, and he called the name of it Rehoboth. That means roominess or expansion. And he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. But it doesn't stay there. And it says that he went up from thence unto Beersheba. Now, in the strategy of God, God's so wise, that's where God wanted him all along, back in Beersheba. And so God is using all of these little conflicts and troubles and trials and wars to bring Isaac back to the place where he ultimately is to be. And once he gets there, it says that the Lord appeared unto him the same night 
and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built there an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. And so the fifth well in the passage is the well in Beersheba. And now God's promise back affirmed, his word affirmed to Isaac again. Isaac back in the place that God wanted him to be. And notice now God causes peace to come with all of his enemies. Verse 26. It says, Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and Ahuzah, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Why do you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between us and you, and let us make a covenant with you, that you do us no hurt, as we have not touched you, and as we have done unto you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Now this is an amazing thing, because what's happening here is that the enemies of Isaac are recognizing the hand of the sovereign, powerful God upon his life, And they're looking from him for terms of peace. They want to be on the right side of Isaac so that they can be on the right side of God. I don't know about you, maybe tonight you have a conflict in your life. Maybe there's a person or a group of people. Maybe even it's in your own family. And there's contention, there's strife, there's envy, there's bitterness, there's contention and woe. Here's my encouragement to you in the scriptures. You keep yourself in the will of God and keep your mind and your heart on your character And let God worry about the reputation and the relationships. And he'll work on those things in his time. The Bible says in the Proverbs that if a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. And we see here Isaac coming into the place that he's supposed to be. Now God settles the conflicts that had been driving him crazy. I mean, he had been carrying this burden of their hatred towards him for all this time. And now they come seeking his favor. And so he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink, and they rose up early in the morning, and they swear one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came, and they told him concerning the well which they had digged. And they said unto him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, and so the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day, that is the well of the oath, or the well of promise. And it says that Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. So though things are flowing, we see that there's still family issues going on with the son Esau that we'll pick up uh, in our study next time. But don't close your Bibles just yet. In this last segment that we just read, what we've seen is we've seen Isaac, first of all, finding his place. He was looking for it in Gerar amongst the Philistines. He tried to fit in there. He tried to make his living and his way amongst the enemies of God. He enjoyed a degree of prosperity and God worked through it and God used it. But through the conflicts, he found himself moving further and further outside until he came into the place that God ultimately wanted him to be, the place of Beersheba, the well or the fountain of promise. It was when he came into that place that Isaac ultimately found his peace. He found the thing that he was looking for in his life. It's interesting in the span of the passage that makes up the second half of the chapter, there are five wells, 
Five times Isaac tried to dig a well, and the well really becomes the theme of this part of Isaac's life. In the Bible, the well represents the person of God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says this. He says that my people, and he's, this is negative, but he tells us the meaning here. He says that my people have committed two evils. One is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now that's a well. That's exactly what Isaac was digging for. He was looking for a living water, a springing water. And God himself calls himself that source, that spring, the place of substance. He says, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the source of all of life. And then the second evil, he says, that they have hewn themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, living water is a well that's continually springing fresh, clean, cold, refreshing water. A cistern is a container hewn or cut out of rock that collects rainwater that is stagnant and cloudy, often bacteria-laden, and that will leak as it leaches into the earth and the cracks and the rivulets of the earth beneath. And what God is saying here is that every human being has two choices. You can either sit and drink satisfied by the fountain of living waters that is me, and I'm the one that will be everything that you need in your life. Or you can forsake the source of all that's living and pure, and you can go and try to find your satisfaction. Try to find your source somewhere else. Gather it from the runoff of this world. And what you're going to find is that the water is cloudy, the water is muddy, the water is sparse, and that the cisterns leak. It can't hold any water. Anything that you try to satisfy yourself with outside of God is ultimately going to fail. And one day as you seek to draw from the depths of it, your cup is going to hit the bottom and you'll come up empty. There'll be nothing in it. In the New Testament, Jesus uses similar language concerning himself. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus, on the great day of the feast, stood up in the midst of all the people that were there. And he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly, that is the depths, the innermost part of his being, will flow forth torrents, rivers of living water. Jesus calling himself the fountain or the well. God in the Bible likening himself to it. And now we take the symbolism, what God says it is, we lay it over the life of Isaac. And we see what Isaac was thirsty for. He was looking for living water. He was looking for something that would satisfy lastingly. He was looking for a source. Five times he tried. I believe it marks, it overlays with the attempts of God's people in every generation to find their source, their place in God. What were Isaac's five wells, quickly? Well, first of all, he tried his father's wells, remember? He unstopped the wells that his father had dug at his days that the Philistines had filled in. I believe there are many Christians that try to find their source in God in something that they've seen or observed in someone else. My father's God. My mom served God. My dad served God. My pastor serves God. What do they do? How do they find the well? What's their prayer life like? How did Spurgeon do it? And we try to unstop the wells of a previous generation. We do it only to find that, God, I recognize that you were there for them then, but I'm not sure if I'm finding you in those things now for me today. Now, don't get me wrong. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, God, Jehovah God, 
He's the same. He's not going to change. But he's not going to meet with you the way he met with someone else. Someone else's testimony is not going to be yours in the way that he reaches into your life. It didn't work with Abraham's God. And so he said, well, I'll try it in Gerar amongst the Philistines. And so he dug a well in the valley, but there was strife. He dug a second well, there was contention. We try to dig our wells in places according to our own will, according to our own way. We find that there's strife, there's wrestling. We're trying, we're striving. God, I want to find you. I'm going to dig for you. God, I'm going to pursue you. I'm not going to quit until I get you, God. We try, but it doesn't work. We're pushed away from those wells. Finally, we say, I give up, I surrender. We find a fourth well. Room, expansion. And we say, oh, there is room, there's hope. God, there's something, you've got something for me. But yet we recognize and realize that I'm growing, but I'm not there yet. God, I'm not ultimately there. Why did Isaac leave? Why did he leave when he found room? He did leave. Why? Because he's learning now to hear God's voice. He's learning to be led. And and God whispered, this isn't the place. He removed from there. He came to Beersheba, the fifth well, the well of promise. No longer is it my parents' God. No longer is it my striving to try to produce the water for myself. No longer is it a wandering, aimlessly thinking that this is all just chance and circumstance. But in the place of promise, in the place where I take God at His word, in the place where the work has been provided by the cross of Calvary, where it's me simply coming and receiving of what God has already provided through the promise of His Son, the place, the well of promise. It's there that I'll build my altar. Interestingly, the fifth well, the digging of the well came at the end of the circumstance. In every other four, it says that he digged and then, he digged and then, he digged and then. But in Beersheba, God spoke. The altar was built and then the well was dug. The order is reversed. It's true for you and I, Christian. As God brings us, as He did Isaac, through the stages of our walk and our growth with Him, there's a season of preparation, a season of testing, a season of building, of suffering even. As God makes us what we're supposed to be and roots out the sin of our lives. There's a season of finding our place as we shift around and figure out, God, who are you? Where do you want me? What is your will? But ultimately, where he's bringing us is to the place where we simply rest. We sit down and we say, Jesus, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. It's not me producing. It's not me striving. It's not my contention. It's just sitting and receiving. And what did Jesus say? He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He didn't say, come and dig and strive, come and try. He said, come and drink. In Revelation, he said, you that have no money, come, buy. You that have nothing, it's free, drink of the waters of life. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus would say, if any of you are weary or heavy laden, let him come to me and rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you'll find rest for your soul. What does God say in the Old Testament? He says, I'm the fountain of living waters. 
And He's a fountain. He's a source for you and I. And the invitation that He gives to you and me is simply come. As the worship team comes and as we close our service tonight, not a big altar call or a big, you know, come forward or anything, but here's the word of the Lord for you and I tonight in this place. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they invite you and I to simply come to Jesus Christ. In whatever place that we're in right now, wherever you are, where you're seated, maybe you're here tonight and you don't even know Jesus Christ personally. I can tell you one thing that you do know. You know what a broken cistern is. You know the sound of an empty cup clanging along the bottom of an empty cistern looking to drink from something that can provide no water. I know you know what that is because I know that sound too. And the invitation of Jesus Christ to you tonight, if that's you, is simply to come. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't pay for it or buy it. But He's willing to give to you as you're willing to receive from Him. Maybe you're here tonight and you're in a different place in your Christian walk and journey. You know the Lord. Your names are written in heaven. But there's things going on in your life right now. And whatever the circumstance has caused, wherever you find yourself, you find yourself reluctant or doubting or thinking that in your famine, you have to figure out a way for yourself. But the word of the Lord to you tonight, like it was to Isaac, and to every one of God's in every generation is simply this. Come. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. In all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. If we would just humble ourselves to the point where we would open our mouths and pray, God is so ready so willing, so wanting to just give the water that we need. And the invitation tonight is to come and sit by the well of promise, to receive from Him all that He is and find that in Him is the answer for all things. Father, we thank You tonight for this uh, amazing testimony. And as we consider, Lord, the, the life that is laid down in Isaac, our desire, O oh God, as we learn Your ways, is to see how it works out in our lives as well. And so, Father, we just want to thank You tonight for who You are. Thank You for Your hand upon us. Thank You for Your provision. And we pray that You would be with us. So whatever the need, Lord, we lay it before You. No matter how severe the famine, we know that You're able. No matter how difficult the trial. We choose tonight, Jesus, to look to you and not to something else. So help us, Father. And in whatever way, Lord, you apply these words to our hearts, we ask you, Lord, that you give us faith, that that faith would turn into hope, and that ultimately we would receive of your love. So we thank you, Lord. And we lift these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?